Now entering Nerdist.com. The Mission Log. A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast. Episode 3. Charlie X. From the halls of the Vulcan High Council to the shores of SETI Alpha 3, this is the Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. He's John Champion. And he's Ken Ray. Every week, we look into the glass onion that is an episode of Star Trek, peeling back the layers and seeing what the show is all about. What are the messages, the morals, and do they and the production itself stand the test of time? This week, it's Village of the Damned meets the X-Men meets... You. We say hello to Charlie X. You know, I never thought of it as the X-Men. Really? Of course. Yeah, it's totally yeah, the X-Men. It is. We it could actually finish the show right now and, just, you know, <laughs> just, just read an issue of the X-Men. It's like, oh, it's a teenager, and suddenly he's got all this stuff, plus the raging hormones, and, uh, you know, plus it's got the X in the title, so really, that you yeah. miss that kind of, you know, worries me. Just right in front of me. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And he's distrusted by everyone around him. Yep. You know, Charlie X is, uh, it's one of those episodes that I owned on VHS and I watched over and over again. And I think as a kid, you know, I, you can kind of identify with Charlie. Um, but it, to me, it was just sort of like, well, here's the bad guy of the week. And I have to say that rewatching it now for our show... I felt so much more sympathy for Charlie, and I, and I really appreciated it on a whole new level. Yeah. I liked well, I mean, it quite it's, a lot. It's, I mean, again, not to, not to hammer this home, and I don't think we're even going to mention it the rest of the time, but it's, I mean, it is the X-Men. I don't, I don't honestly know which one came first, but whenever you hear an analysis of the X-Men, you, you hear that one of the reasons it's so popular with teenagers is because, you know, teenagers are changing, and they feel like they've got so much stuff they want to do, and they've got all these powers, but they also feel completely ostracized. Which is kind of mm-hmm. funny because we put them in buildings with like 400 other teenagers. Right. <laughs> right. And yet they all sort of feel like, you know, lost and alone. And yep. and uh, and certainly, I mean, Charlie was much more lost and alone than than most teens. But I guess that's the whole, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the whole point. Hey, let's just skip to the end of the show again. <laughs> no. Well, you know, in this episode, they, they put him in a uh, in a ship with 400 adults, 400 hardworking adults. So he gets to be a very powerful fish out of water. Um, do you want some trivia about this episode? Do I? Of course you do. <laughs> um, everybody knows this, but we, we have to mention it, that uh, there is a scene where the uh, the chef comes over the uh, the PA into the bridge, you know, interrupts a very dramatic scene. Uh, but never mind, they always pipe through the chef to the bridge when there's something important. Um, announcing that the meatloaves... Oh, wait, 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 don't tell that part oh. yet. Oh, okay. Don't tell what he's announcing, just, you know, because th- that's not trivial. I mean, you say oh, that he's wait, interrupting, and true. I'm saying he's actually moving along the action, but don't even tell <laughs> that part yet. Who's the guy who's, like, talking over the intercom? Well, the chef is... Gene Roddenberry. It is one, it's his one and only um, character bit on Star Trek. We, we don't actually see him, but we hear his voice. And uh, that is the man himself, the boss, <laughs> Gene Roddenberry, uh, who is the voice of the chef. I thought that was so cool. Could you do that? Like if you were if you were doing a show, I mean, and I don't mean because we're doing a show, but I mean if you were doing a show, right? Like yeah. uh, Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica or um, right, uh, 
Smallville. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. General Hospital, let's say. Any, I mean, if you were doing a show and you were responsible for years of a show, could you really, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you be tempted to Hitchcock it every now and then? Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, just show yeah. up, like, you know, randomly someplace and just, like, be there? Uh, well, it didn't hurt Hitchcock at all. Right. And at the same I, time, I, I Hitchcock would... wasn't doing a weekly show. I mean, if, if every right. week Gene Roddenberry had shown up, eventually people would be like, who's, why is he always, there's always a guy in the background. Right. Yeah. Well, right. given me, I might even take it a step further. I'd be, you know, I'd stand in for uh, Captain Kirk, you know, stunt double <laughs> for Mr. Spock. I just throw myself in wherever possible. Eventually it becomes Star Trek, a one-man show starring right. John Champion. And why not? Everybody. And right. the bad guy of the week, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, the story was actually written by Gene Roddenberry. He conceived it. He created it. Uh, but the screenplay was written by D.C. Fontana, who is uh, – she is sort of a, a force of nature within Star Trek. Young woman, started out as a story editor, became a uh, – uh, oh, I'm sorry. She started out as a writer, a kind of contributor, became a story editor. And, uh, you know, look at her IMDb. She is just – Lousy with credits and uh, uh, a highly, highly respected creator of uh, scripts and entertainment. So I always like to look for her name and stuff. And she probably knows more about Star Trek than just about anybody who is alive today. And I know you also want to give props to, uh, to the music man. Fred Steiner, who did a lot of uh, Star Trek music, I, I think he did a, a few dozen episodes of Star Trek, did the incidental music. And, um, it, you know, like I said, this is an episode that I've watched a lot. And I, I like the idea that Trek is a show that we can pick up new details every time we watch it. And the music really stood out to me this time. Um, I thought it was just creepy and moody, um, really set the tone. Uh, so that really stood out to me on this viewing of it. Yeah, it's not signature music the way, um, well, we're so far away from this episode at this point, <laughs> but the way the way uh, the music in A Mock Time was, I mean, that music yeah. has, has become like a cultural touch point slash joke sometimes. I mean, the cable guy, right. they reference right. that music. That music right. is like, that music sort of almost transcends. Um, this is not that kind of thing. This is not the shower scene in Psycho. This is not, you know, A Mock Time. This is not uh, Superman flying in to save the day. Um, no, no, but it's great. I mean, it yeah. really, it, it, it's not, it's, I guess you would technically call it incidental music, but it doesn't feel like that. It's, it's not quite a character, um, yeah. but it certainly does. It certainly does a better job of setting the mood than a lot of, uh, than a lot of, uh, music that you hear on TV, both from that time and today. Well, that's the thing It's very theatrical and it doesn't have that sort of cheap sound of TV music. It's really nice. <laughs> Although on the scratch track, it was just a guy on a kazoo. Actually, I think it was Gene Roddenberry on a kazoo. Just on a kazoo. But, but really, this is going to sound much better later. The man can do anything. Addition. What happens when you add X to the crew of the Starship Enterprise? The Antares, a survey ship, pulls alongside the Enterprise and drops off a castaway, Charlie Evans. Charlie was a sole survivor for more than a decade of a crashed ship on an uninhabited planet called Thasis. The Antares captain and first officer are suddenly very kind about Charlie, but also a little anxious to get going after getting a look from their passenger. The look means that Charlie has some sort of mental powers we don't yet fully understand. Enter Yeoman Rand and cue the love-struck music 
Are you a girl? Charlie asks. And before we hit the opening credits, we know something is up. Act one. Charlie's first stop is sickbay, where McCoy declares him to be in great health. This is the first expression Charlie makes about just wanting to be liked. And in his infinite country, Dr. Wisdom, McCoy agrees that we all do. Charlie leaves to take in what the rest of the crew are doing and oddly catches a conversation between a couple of guys who are going to hit the gym later, which ends in a butt slap, a friendly butt slap. He later encounters Yeoman Rand in the hallway, presents her with a bottle of perfume out of nowhere, and then proceeds to give her the same slap on the butt he witnessed earlier. This move doesn't go over so well. In one of those rare moments when we see the crew completely at leisure, a clearly amused Spock is playing his harp while Uhura improvises a song about Spock's darkly seductive powers. She switches to a song about Charlie when he enters the room, and he uses those mental powers this time to rob Uhura of her voice. He then proceeds in his attempts to woo Rand with impressive card tricks. Impressive because they are physically impossible, but no one notices because they are tricks. And by the way, no one seems too concerned at all about Uhura and Spock. In a corridor, Kirk is telling a crew member that with Thanksgiving approaching, he wants the synthetic meatloaves to be shaped into turkeys. The duties of a captain never end. Charlie shows up, and uh, Kirk starts to explain why that friendly slap on Rand was definitely a bad thing to do. Just in time to save him from the awkward conversation, a call from the bridge brings Kirk back with Charlie in tow, for a message from the Antares. Just as the captain of the Antares is ready to deliver a warning, the communication is cut off, and Charlie exclaims that the ship wasn't well constructed. Spock confirms that only debris of the ship remains. Before their suspicions get too close to Charlie, a message from the kitchen, to the bridge, I don't know, uh, reveals that all the synthetic meatloaf in the oven has now been magically transformed into real turkeys. Charlie lets out a laugh. Act 2. It's our first view of three-dimensional chess as Kirk and Spock play a game and talk over what happened to the Antares. Charlie steps in and asks to play, and Spock handily wipes up the chessboard with Charlie's ego. We know what's coming now. Charlie's eyes roll back, and the wrath of his look melts the chess pieces from their game. Moments later, Rand attempts to introduce Charlie to another younger yeoman named Tina. Charlie brushes off the attempted blind date, and he further tries to express his feelings for Rand. She takes this problem to the captain, who so far is not putting together Charlie's outburst with the problem of constantly hitting on his female crew. In his quarters, Kirk really tries to buckle down with a father-to-son kind of talk to settle down Charlie's hormones a little. Now it's time to focus those hormones into a more constructive way, and the guys head to the gym where Kirk is going to teach Charlie how to throw another man. Sam may as well be standing there in a red shirt. Well, he, he's in red tights and a red robe. And when he laughs at Charlie's ineptitude, Charlie breaks out the look again, this time making Sam completely disappear. Kirk calls security, but Charlie merely tosses him aside with his mental powers. Kirk calmly but forcefully puts on the father voice and makes Charlie go back to his room. Act 3. Spock speculates that Charlie may not be human, but rather a Thasian, the legendary former inhabitants of the planet where Charlie was found. McCoy insists that Charlie is, in fact, human. Charlie does finally admit that he was responsible for destroying the Antares, but he justifies it by saying that the crew weren't nice to him. Charlie, now exposed as a threat to the Enterprise, starts exercising his powers at will. 
He tampers with communications, navigation, even messes with Spock's oratory. Kirk, who seems to be the only one Charlie respects, lays a smack down and again sends Charlie away with a few choice words. Charlie runs into Tina again, and he turns her into an iguana. He then shows up at Yeoman Ram's quarters and produces a pink rose. She's about had enough and tries to finally make him stop. Act 4. Rand uses the in-room communicator to alert the bridge, and Kirk and Spock come running to the rescue. Charlie throws Spock and Kirk against the wall and makes Rand disappear after she slaps him. Spock's legs were broken from the impact, but Kirk forces Charlie to let them go and fix Spock's legs when he admits that he can't run the Enterprise on his own. In an attempt to confine Charlie, Kirk lures him to a brig, but Charlie simply makes the wall disappear and freezes Kirk and Spock long enough to tell them that they'll be sorry. He wanders the halls a little more, doling out some twisted punishments, making a young woman turn old, wiping the eyes, nose, and mouth from a laughing crew member. Finally, we're getting closer to Colony 5, where Kirk had planned to drop off Charlie, but now he's having second thoughts. Kirk decides to stop Charlie by turning on every ship's system at once. Charlie is overwhelmed, and Kirk makes his move. Just as he's about to throw a punch, a Thasian craft shows up alongside the Enterprise, and Yeoman Rand reappears on the bridge. The non-corporeal head of a Thasian manifests itself on the bridge and explains that they gave powers to Charlie so he could survive. Charlie begs to not go with the Thasians. Kirk attempts to negotiate for him to stay, but it's out of his hands. Charlie's last plea explains that the Thasians do not love and cannot feel. It's too late, and he disappears from the bridge. You know what I love about this? What's that? It, well, it's kind of nice. I mean, they, they, they make the Enterprise a tiny bit more accessible because we've talked, you know, just in the in the three mm-hmm. episodes that we've done so far about how they've got the video phones, which was so far in the future for the 60s. And they've got, you know, the communicators, <laughs> which was so far in the futures for the 60s or in the future for the 60s. Excuse me. It's nice to know, though, that electronics haven't changed that much in the 23rd century. To stop Charlie, uh, they're pretty much just going to overload the circuits of the Enterprise by turning everything on all yeah. at once. Yeah. <laughs> Spock, you do laundry. Bones, you turn on the coffee maker. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like my house, honestly, in, in some respects. Right. And so I kind of appreciate that. I kind of like the fact yeah. that, you know, at the end of the day, oh, sure, it's a ship that can fly through a space. But, you know, seriously, don't run the dishwasher and the coffee maker at the same time. Right. Right. Because all that all that copper wiring can't take it. all that 23rd century copper wiring and coaxial cable. Right. Is is just going to fry. Yeah. And and that, of course. And, and there was and there was actually something else. And we didn't mention it in the recap because it's not important. But again, just sort of the accessibility thing. When when Charlie first starts to take over the Enterprise, um, Uhura is thinks that she's receiving a message, I believe. I believe this is when the Thasians first try to contact the, the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Uhura goes to try to boost the, the power, and uh, and the and the, the the console basically blows up at her, and right. she turns to Kirk right. and say, there, "There's no reason that this should have happened. I checked the wiring 15 minutes ago. Really, right. Right. <laughs> on a starship. <laughs> I understand she's the communications director, but really, you know, it's it's sort of like I don't expect Bones to to fix his tricorder. I yeah. think there's probably a guy, or maybe they got another tricorder. I don't expect Uhura to really, you know." I mean, she's like Ernestine, the uh, the the operator that Lily Tomlin used to play pulling on out the plugs. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe oh, you know, blackmail just maybe. is such an ugly word, Mister Thasian. <laughs> well, just maybe they they have a checklist, and when they show That's up true. for duty, they've got to take it apart. 
They're going to make sure it's all working. Yeah, just, just like you would in real life. Yeah. Not ever. No, well, not so much, yeah. Like I, before we started recording, I actually took apart my computer <laughs> and uh, gave it a good dusting and put it all back together. <laughs> so that I knew it worked correctly when I talked to you. Back in the day, I uh, was a board op uh, for a couple of different radio stations. And I knew that the board would flip up. Mm-hmm. like the top of the board where the faders are. I could flip it up and I could right. look inside. And occasionally I would just because it, it looked neat. But yeah, seriously, yeah. if something went wrong, I called my engineer. Yes. I, I did not, you know, <laughs> right. flipping up the board was like something I did when I was bored and nobody else was around because, you know, I was operations director and I might have actually gotten in trouble for yeah. flipping up the board because that <laughs> right. was a place that I shouldn't go, even as right. operations director. Um, there's also a bit more, there's another weird thing about the ship. We talked uh, in the cage about how frontier things were where, you know, slave trading might be fine and, you know, mm-hmm. you know we're, we're going to leave these people who are stranded because there are other people that we know we can help. Mm-hmm. Um, there's less of a frontier, frontier feel on this one and more of a ship feel, which I know it's a ship. But I mean, like a sailing ship in the middle of nowhere. When Uhura is singing, she's basically like she's making up, she's freestyling shanties. Yeah, no way. They're yeah. not they're not pirate songs because everybody doesn't know them. But you got one guy playing the one instrument that he has. Say you know the guy who was on deck with the squeeze box or whatever. Except this time right. it's Spock with this mega harp, mega small harp, but mega harp nonetheless. Boy, and he's got a grin on his face like nobody. Yeah, I know. Kind of weird. He's just happy about it, which is odd. Yep, it's illogical to be happy about people making up songs about your devilish look. I know. <laughs> but okay. Um, and, and there's a familiarity to the crew as well. I mean, you talk about the butt slapping. I mean, there's a familiarity mm-hmm. to the crew here that um, is not always felt in all of the episodes. I mean, you know that the characters that you know know each other and like each other. But my God, these people are happy to be on the ship until, you know, yeah, uh, at along a certain, came Charlie. At, at a certain point early on, it's kind of like a sales video, like a recruitment video <laughs> for the Enterprise. It's like you're walking down the hall and people are just smiling at each other and they're doing their jobs and yeah. they're just smiling. You got the guy kind of with the pipe that he's lowering down into the floorboard and he, he's just happy to be there. And it's yeah. like, come on down and join the Enterprise. You got the guy you know? up in the crow's nest and you got the guy sliding right. down the sail and – yeah. <laughs> I, I may have actually started watching a different movie halfway through another thing. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, but on a more serious note, um, the thing that I really like about this episode is it, not just because Charlie is a really well-developed character and all that, but I, I love that in the ending of this, you have this ambivalent kind of dark ending. You know, Wait, you you're going to jump to the ending? Well, I, I'm just talking about things that we – Things that we enjoy. And, and that's what I was left with in this episode. Like uh, uh, you have all this happy-go-lucky fun times on the Enterprise. And again, you know, we have another episode where people are hitting on each other and kind of flirting with each other. Um, but then by the time we get to the end of this, uh, we don't know what really is going to happen to Charlie. We don't know what the rest of his life is going to be like. And they kind of lower the lights on the bridge a little bit and say, well... I guess that's over now, and then move along. Yeah, there, there, there's no slap on the back, no, uh, no little musical sting at the end. None of that. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 I really mm-hmm. want to come back to that in a bit. Okay, no I'm, problem. I'm at not all. saying we don't want to talk about it now, but well, I guess I am. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. <laughs> because this is, I mean, this is. Ah, see, I can't do it now, though. Okay, we'll no, we'll get do to what that. You do. Stick around to the end of this show to find out what we thought about the end of this show. <laughs> All right. Very good. 
the New Oxford American Dictionary defines X as denoting an unknown or unspecified person or thing. So how do we define Charlie X? Talk to me about morals, themes. I mean, because the way I do these shows, forgive me, the way I mm-hmm. go into this show is I watch the show twice. The first time I'll watch it, I'll just sit there and watch it. And the second time I watch it, I actually go back and make notes about almost every minute of the show to try mm-hmm. to pull stuff out. And this was a, a – a, you were not hit over the head. There's a lot to think about in this episode, but you were not hit over the head with the – I mean, we go back to the man trap. We talked about the, you know, the, the ecological sort of idea yeah. of, you know, the buffalo and the last of them and all that. There's not, a, there's not that theme here. I mean, there's the angst of adolescence in a way. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to figure out what the morals are. I mean, it, it almost feels like, like the simplest, most direct moral of this story might be there are more important things than being liked. And I know that sounds so incredibly simple, but that really is like all of Charlie's trouble boils down to – he wants to be liked more than he wants to be good. And because yeah. he wants to be liked and can't really work at being liked, he just wants it to happen. He ends up, for all intents and purposes, I don't want to say he's on a prison planet. I mean, it's not like he was sent to Seleucus Secundus or anything like that. But he, he ends up in, in, in sort of in, in isolation because right. what he wanted more than anything was to be liked. Yeah, well, he wanted to be liked and – you know, this was the first time in 15 years that he had ever been around other human beings. Right. Um, and last time he was so, three and he really didn't appreciate it. Yeah, really did not appreciate it at all. Like a three-year-old. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, it, it's not one of those morals like, you know, hitting you over the head saying, remember, kids, don't make people disappear. <laughs> or uh, remember, kids. Don't break the legs of the person who's coming to rescue the person that you're trying to rape. Although, um, it, although let's be fair, those are both good morals. But but that's not the the point of the show. I, I think this is more of just kind of an exploration of youth angst. And, and that's what I thought was so interesting about it, that here it is in the 60s, and Star Trek is this very progressive show, um, kind of showing many, many aspects of society but i feel like within charlie x charlie's yeah charlie's goal is to be liked but part of that being liked is to sort of be assimilated into the structure of the enterprise you know the, it, it, this is a very establishment mainstream work environment everybody there is there to do a job and headed by the captain and the orders come down from the captain and you know, the only way that Charlie's going to fit in is if he acts a little more like them. So, you know, he, so I'm sorry. Are you actually putting out there that the, the, the moral of, of, of this episode might be conformity? I, I think there's a part of it. Yeah, I really do. Huh. Um, I feel like, like I said, here's a show that's, you know, right at the height of kind of counterculture, youth movement. You know, we're, we're just rushing headlong into Woodstock and all of this stuff. And, um, and I do feel like there's this little thread within the story here that is about conformity and establishment and working within the structure. Um, they're all very kind to Charlie. They're all very nice to him. But, you know, you really respect Kirk. And being that father figure and just putting the foot down. 
and realizing that Kirk is the only one that Charlie really won't stand up to because wow. he because that's all he needs. He just needs that that kind of, you know, strong figure. Now, it does come to a head at the end, but throughout the episode, Charlie could have just made Kirk disappear over and over again, but he didn't. Well, I mean, there is an implication that he actually needs Kirk. And I'm, I don't just mean as a father figure. I mean, um, you talked about the part where uh, he is uh, forcing his affection on Yeoman Rand, let's say. Sure. And uh, Kirk and Spock come running in, and Charlie makes it clear that he needs Kirk to run the ship. Yeah. Even when he takes it over, he still feels that he needs Kirk uh, to some extent to run the ship. Right. And that's how Kirk gets, you know, uh, Spock out. So it's not just um, it's not just the father figure thing, although certainly that is a huge part of it. I have to say, though, I'm going to go another way on it. I mean, because mm-hmm. I definitely did get the conformity uh, angle when the mm-hmm. show was going on. I wonder, though, if there's not also a message here for parents, um, <laughs> which may sound uh, it may sound like I'm reaching, and I guess maybe I am a little bit, but stick with me. The Thasians say that they gave Charlie their power, and their power, I don't know that we, I mean, their power was uh, Spock laid it out at one point. They uh, they can make things appear and disappear and, you know, mind control and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're, right. uh, think of the, uh, think of the, uh, not the menagerie, think of the cage, mm-hmm. but actually being able to do, physically do stuff. Like, like right. the cage that the Thasians built would have stood up to that laser, buddy. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yep. Um, being a three-year-old in a hostile environment, them giving him their power is likely true, and it likely is what saved his life. But, I mean, let, let's apply this to what happens today or what's been happening, you know, for, I don't know, the past 50 years, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, families who give kids cars with no real appreciation on the kid's part of how to take care of the car, how to drive responsibly, you know, what it costs, what went into getting the kid the car. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Wealthy families say who give kids every advantage and privilege, but no sense of how to act in society with others who don't have those advantages or privileges. There's a there's a cold standoffishness about the Thasians, yeah, that's driving Charlie nuts. I mean, and this is like this is I mean this is the poor little rich boy uh, story in a way of, you know, given everything except, you know, a, a clear understanding of how to act in society. Uh, you think about the, uh, the Menendez brothers, if you want to, and that's sort of that's <laughs> sort of horrible, except it's not because, you know, they killed people and so did Charlie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and really had a lot going for them and had a lot going for him. And yet, you know, just it, there's no there's there's a there's a disconnect. The Enterprise crew, I mean, does see this as an issue. And it's what you were talking about uh, towards the end, but uh, ultimately, they, uh, they they feel powerless to, to help or to change it or to do anything. And, and 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 I wonder if maybe that's not, even if it's not, because I still don't think that there was one. <laughs> I mean, there are more important things than being liked. Is a big lesson here. Conformity is a big lesson here. Um, except I don't I don't think any one of them is the one that's hitting you over the head. And so I wonder if there's not if this isn't a cautionary tale to parents as well, potentially of, yeah, you know, sure, give your kids the advantages that you have, but also, you know, take an interest and, and have them meet other people and have them understand that, you know, uh, rape is bad and taking over a starship is bad. Right. <laughs> and, right. And it's better to be good than be liked. Yeah. Well, it's saying that, you know, young people need discipline. And, uh, you know, I was trying to... <laughs> what, did you turn well, 50 since last year? I know, really? Yeah, yeah, really. Okay. Yeah, well, well it, it's this... Not that there's anything blend. wrong with 50-year-olds. I'm sorry. I will, I will be 50 <laughs> one day. I shouldn't... Ageist, ageist jerk. No, it's just all of a sudden you're like, you know, you're like a headmaster at some school. 
<laughs> exactly. All right. But, but it, it does kind of say that. You know, Kirk is the disciplinarian. Kirk's a disciplinarian yeah. on, on the ship, and he's a disciplinarian for Charlie. And uh, the Thasians have no, you know, they're completely different species. They, all they can do for Charlie is give him power. They can't offer him a, a context Right. For that power, right, um, and and Charlie, you know, needs to be assimilated. He he needs to have some sort of uh, uh, understanding of how to work with and live with other people. And when he can't cut it, the Thasians take him away. Um, it's horribly sad uh, that that he will never be given that chance. But I, I was kind of thinking about that in a way of. Um, Kind of like our our own adolescence, and I don't mean individually, uh, because obviously this is a big slice of life about what people are going through when they are at that adolescent age, and they're they're trying to assert a little power and a little individuality and feel out the world around them. But I also thought of this kind of in in the bigger picture, uh, kind of a bigger context, thinking that uh, well, it, this is sort of a message for humanity as well that as we develop power as we gain knowledge and again this is 60s this is the height of the cold war and we have nuclear weapons and we we have all these abilities we still have to have the temperance of discipline to use that correctly and use it wisely and I, I think charlie kind of uh represents that a little bit i don't think it was maybe the point uh, that they had in mind as they were doing it. Um, but if I were to extrapolate this to a, a bigger picture, that's what I would say. It's an interesting idea. I mean, mm. there's, there's a, at one point Charlie says, and I actually liked it. I mean, it sort of, it reminded me of, um, it's so terrible to keep referencing other works. It reminded me of the end of, <laughs> reminded me of the end of Pet Cemetery when, you know, the little kid says, not fair and walks away mm-hmm. in the middle of, in the middle of Charlie X. Uh, Charlie says, growing up isn't so much. I'm not a man and I can do anything. You can't. Um, It's an interesting idea that Charlie represents mankind at his current stage in development or at, you know, his stage of development in the 1960s. Maybe more so in the 60s. Yeah. Because I don't, I didn't live in the 60s. And, and so I don't, I don't know what it was actually like to live in the 60s. The ideas that have survived though, culturally are the ones that say, Oh, we were waking up to, you know, this. We were burning our bras and 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 we were on our way to Woodstock as you mentioned earlier and right. You know, culturally things were shifting and you know, there was the Cold War and and we we're just waking up to all these new ideas that we hadn't uh, had in a while. Whether we did or not, uh we have this idea now that we knew that we were growing. Mhm. And today it feels like we 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 we're more like Charlie than we were in the 60s. And now maybe that's just hindsight. Maybe that's just maybe we were just as headstrong and forgive me for saying it dumb mm-hmm. in the '60s as we are today. But today we seem to have this idea of you know we're grown and we can do what we want and we're gonna you know shove you over here. We're gonna push you over there. Yeah. And no, we're not doing anything wrong. And shut up. Yeah. And- all you ha- all you have to do is read feedback on websites. You know, read the comments <laughs> section on YouTube or Fox <laughs> News, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. And and so I mean it is kind of an interesting idea to think that that 
I, it feels like Charlie may apply. Maybe it's just because this is the time that you and I are living in, and maybe people would have said the same thing in the 30s. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is it is sort of an interesting idea that uh, Charlie uh, does represent. I don't know what kind of like what timeline do you want to put on it that he sort of represents mankind. I mean, we think we always think we know what we're doing. We always yeah. think that what we're doing is right, and and we don't have that sort of. You know, maybe we should this thing that uh, that you end up wishing that Charlie had in a big way. Yeah, well, you know, the Thasians here are a lot like, you know, other aliens that you encounter in Star Trek. And since we just did the cage, similar idea, you know, this all powerful kind of all knowing and they can look at humanity and say, no, 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 you can't handle this. Yeah, I'm getting tired of that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking well, as a human, I'm getting tired of that. <laughs> well, we'll you know, we'll, we'll have a protest sign for you for <laughs> you, you know. Stop the human denigration. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll sell t-shirts. Uh, I'm a human. Yeah. I can take it. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it is that similar idea that that says you know, here we are an audience in the 20th or 21st century looking at a show set in the 23rd, but even that advanced, uh, you know, smart, and uh, there's a word again, disciplined group would not be able to handle even more power, even more ability, even more knowledge. They, they have to take the baby steps to find it on their own and stumble on their own. Um, well, so handing over somebody like Charlie is, is dangerous. In fairness, though, the Thasians were actually thinking of humanity and Charlie in that in a different way than they were in the cage. The um – Sure. Thelosians? Yes. The Thelosians. 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 My apologies. Yeah. 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 The names. The Thelosians, you know, said, no, 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 you couldn't have this power because you'd ruin yourself. And that to me uh, strikes me as a very chauvinist attitude. Um, The the, uh, race with whom we're dealing today, because I've known officially the Thasians, thank you, officially confused their names. The Thasians, on the other hand, say, uh, I mean, Charlie is basically like a loose nuke. I mean, yeah. if you want to put it in terms that we hear, you know, on the news in the 21st century, he's basically a loose nuke. And and the deal is either he will end up destroying humanity or humanity will have to destroy him. Right. And the Thasians decide that what they really should do is go ahead and take him back with them. Now, yeah. I do believe that they're actually thinking this is what's best for everyone. I'm not 100 percent certain that it really is best for Charlie. I mean, maybe he can sit there for the next 15 years until another ship happens by and think, you know what he really should have done was was maybe talked to Yeoman Rand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, found well, out what and, she likes. You know? and, and, and Kirk would agree with you because, yeah. you know, at, at the end of the episode, he makes that plea for Charlie to be among his own kind. And really, when it comes down to it. Yeah. Do, do the Thasians have the right to do that? <laughs> I, you know, they took him. When yes. he was three years old, gave him this power without his asking for it. They did not then, take him. They saved him. He crashed <laughs> on their planet. I mean, there is a difference. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about uh, an abduction here. We're talking about right. there was a kid on the rock. Right, right, right. And well, the they, said, you know, let's read Sure, sure. They, they allowed him to live. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, you know, maybe it's sort of like a, a zoo animal in in that respect. You know, when when you find a wounded creature and then nurse it back to health, can can they really assimilate back into their natural environment? You see that all the time. It's like that squirrel running around my house right now. 
Exactly. Yeah. He Quiet was him cute, down. He was please. a cute little baby when I found him, and I thought, oh, he's going to die, and now I've got this squirrel. Yeah. In my yeah. You know, you actually say that uh, Kirk argued with the Thasians. Um, Kirk folded like a cheap tent twice in this episode. <laughs> there were two times that he did this. Uh, the first one was, and and really, you can blame Kirk for the uh, for the destruction of the Antares because uh, Kirk is talking to uh, Charlie in the hall. And mm-hmm. they call Kirk to the bridge because they're getting a message from the Ontaries. And Charlie says, can I come with you? And Kirk says, no. And Charlie says, I'll stay out of the way. And Kirk says, okay. Right. <laughs> and, right. and, and he doesn't even do the crazy eye thing. Okay. This is not, yeah, yeah, this is yeah. not mind control. This is, just, this is just Kirk like being a pushover for this kid. Uh, and, of course, then he's also a pushover for the Thasians because he says, no, no, no. He needs to stay with us. And the Thasians are like, no, no, really. You don't understand. And Kirk's like, ah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> And, well, he, and, I, and then he back, you know, then he, then he kind I, of backs off it. I think Kirk knew the power that he was dealing with, but uh, and that's the side of Kirk that I like seeing in this is that he gets flustered. That uh, that chat that he has with Charlie in the hallway about yeah. how there's no right way to hit a woman, or in this case, playfully slap. Right. Um, well, no hit. I mean, well, he, he says he's hit, making the but, point. There's no right way to hit a woman, which yeah, is a I, you know, which is. I mean, we're in a different time now where, you know, I mean, Andy Kaufman certainly broke the barriers as far as what men and women could do as far as uh, combat right. are concerned. But generally right, speaking, right. generally speaking, this is a message, I think. And so maybe that's the message, too. Maybe because you know, uh, really a lot of Charlie's problems did start with swatting Yeoman, uh, Yeoman Rand's behind. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the moral of the story is knock off that 1950s, you know, pinching, slapping the behind. All your problems are solved. Sure. But, but. <laughs> Kirk does try to give Charlie a little lesson in seduction later. You know, yeah. Kirk's going to help him out. Yeah. He's like, you, you got to go slow. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and we see that this is a tactic that works for Kirk over and over and over again later. Yeah. So, uh, so Charlie could have, he had this opportunity really to learn from the best. But he squandered it away. Screwed it up. Subtraction. What does X plus the Enterprise minus X leave us with? So there are questions that we ask at the uh, at the end of um, each episode. Uh, do the messages stand the test of time? And does the show itself, the production itself, stand the test of time? I think we usually do the show first, and then we do the messages. Let's do it the other way around this time. Okay, sure. Do them I mean, so again. It's it's a difficult show. It seems to me a difficult episode in terms of message because there isn't one. There's yeah. not the ecological message, or there's not you know those kinds of things. There's not the is it okay to make people slaves? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, there. I mean, you you kind of have to you have to work to extract the messages out of this. But I mean, if we assume that you know the messages are. I don't know. I mean, do you feel like the messages are, are prevalent enough to stand the test of time? Uh, I don't. Um, it, or do you feel uh, like it's not a message show? I guess that's really the question. Yeah. Because you can, I, I, you can pull like you can pull lessons from it. But this, right. I mean, and, and maybe I mean, it really could. I know this is how we started that conversation, but it really could be as simple as there are more important things than being liked. And if, and if you want to say that that's the message, then I would say that that message stands. 
Yeah, I, to me, I just feel like the the, the message uh, to find that message, you you kind of have to reach for it. To me, this is really a show about um, about the emotion, about sympathizing with Charlie and him being a fish out of water. He's so completely and utterly out of place and trying to find himself. So. To me, this is more of a character study about that, and uh, and we as the audience get to sympathize and empathize and kind of go along for his journey. Okay. So, but, okay. I, I'm, uh-huh. well, I'm just, you know we're reaching for messages, you know, kind of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Are right. you willing to? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I would say to say that you know there are more important things than being like that's obviously a message that stands. Yeah, I I do think that that message does hold uh, the the idea that um, uh, yeah that, that there is something more important than being liked. That uh, Charlie is very selfish, and and you can't force yourselves upon you can't force yourself upon others and uh, uh, make them like you. I, I I do think that that idea holds up. I, I just think. You're, right, just, you're just really in love with this episode, aren't you? To the point that, I mean, you, you kind of, I mean, and I'm not, and that's mm-hmm. fine because, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the next question is, does this production, does this episode stand the test of time? My feeling is that you are, you are so in love with this episode that you kind of don't want to, you know, you don't want to dig for the meaning, which, <laughs> which is okay, which is okay because I, I think your answer and my answer would be the same. Does this episode stand the test of time? Resounding Yes. Yeah, well, the production does, but you know, going back to the message, I, I just, you know, we we tried to find a lot of little messages in here because, like you said, there isn't a a profound singular message about the episode, mm-hmm. um, and, and I was kind of stretching a little bit with this idea of humanity being at its adolescence and needing to temper its its power and sort of newfound power with some discipline. But again, I, I, I can't really say that the episode specifically is about that. So do the messages stand a test of time? Well, the, the ones that you can find within there probably do. Mm-hmm. But I don't think this is a heavy message episode. You see, that's that's the thing, though, that's interesting about um, – that's the thing that's interesting about uh, – I might anger somebody – great art. Mm-hmm. Which I think I think after fifty years of people still sitting around talking about individual episodes, I think you could go ahead and put Star Trek in that you know in that mm-hmm. in that category. Sure, I mean it doesn't have to be about all of those things to to still carry those things with it. I mean I don't think I mean we had to work harder at finding messages from this episode, but I think the messages were there. And so mm-hmm. I mean I w- I would personally say that the ones that we pulled out do uh, you know do stand the test of time. And 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 it's actually better that it wasn't, you know, that we didn't get. And I know I've used this phrase before, and I probably will the whole time we do this show. We never got the you see, Timmy. We didn't get right. like the thing at the end where they said, "Well, no, Charlie had to go with the Thasians, but I do feel it was for the best." I mean, what we get at the end is everybody sitting around, just sort of like, man, it's I, pretty I, grim. That, that really, yeah, yeah, that really is it. They, I mean, I, I joked about Kirk folding like a cheap tent, but I mean, he doesn't really. He assesses the situation and decides that that probably is the best thing, but probably is in there. I think he decides that that probably is the best thing. I don't think he knows for certain that they've made the right decision and not not fighting the Thasians a bit more. Now, he couldn't have fought the Thasians physically. 
Right. Um, they, I mean, because physically the Thasians weren't even there, which gives you some idea of their power. They weren't actually right. able to read them on their instruments, uh, but they were there and they were able to take Charlie back. So, I mean, they couldn't have fought them, but they, I mean, he might have tried to make a more compelling case. But I, but I think, you know, he decided that probably it was the best thing. And what makes this one of the best episodes to me, or at least a great episode, one that stands up, is is the fact that you don't get the AC Timmy. Yeah. I mean, you and I could sit here and if we wanted to take different sides, we could both make compelling arguments for why what Kirk did was right and why Kirk, what Kirk did was wrong. I found myself in the two times that I watched it preparing for this for this particular, you know, recording, not 100 percent sure. Not 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 certain that it ended well. And I love the fact that I had a show that at the end of it, I could sit there and say, man, I don't know if that ended right or not. Yeah. And and with that, I agree 100 percent because I, I like the kind of grim. I mean, it's just emotionally it's grim at the end. Like I said, the, the mm-hmm. lights kind of lower and nobody's really talking to each other anymore. And they're they're visibly shaken that Charlie has been taken away from them. And, and I like that sort of ambivalence that you don't really know what's in store for Charlie. That's you interesting. Know, uh, you you say they they they're shaken that Charlie has been taken away from them. I and I, I think that they are shaken that they allowed Charlie to be taken away. I think they're mm-hmm. shaken by the decision mm-hmm. that they made. I don't think it's missing Charlie so much as, wow, we just we 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 let that happen. And yeah. now, and now we have to be okay with it, whether whether we're actually okay with it or not. Right. Uh, but to me, you know, just talking now about uh, does that production and and that's kind of what we melded into here was you know the production sending the test of time yeah i think that's a very it's a very modern way to tell a story um instead of what a lot of tv at the time that star trek is on was doing and having this you see timmy moment or wrapping it up neatly and having a a sting on the end and a slap on the back and smiles to the camera while you run the closing credits and that is not this show at all um, so it really resonated with me and I, I, I love the, uh, you know, a little, a little heightened at the end, but I, I really like, uh, Charlie's plea at the end, um, because that drives home what he was after all along. He just didn't understand what it was that he was after. So you see, Timmy, <laughs> we're not sure if the morals actually stood up or if there were morals presented in the story, but... Uh, we do think it's definitely one worth uh, worth watching and in, I think in some ways actually uh, studying. What I don't know, though, is what we think about next week's show. So next week, I can't wait to talk about this one, Where No Man Has Gone Before. And for those of you who are playing the home version of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, you know that we are doing these in broadcast order. Now, Where No Man Has Gone Before was the second pilot that was filmed after The Cage, but it was actually the third episode of Star Trek to air. And we look forward to bringing it to you. Until next time, he's John Champion. And that guy is Ken Ray. And we will talk to you next week. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. And now, if you'll excuse me, 
I'm going to go work on my people skills. We will talk to you next week. End transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Thank <laughs> you.